I'm tackling a big task this morning. Ezekiel in a nutshell. It is a big nut. (laughs) But uh, you will be the judge of whether I have covered the territory sufficiently for you to understand the message of the book of Ezekiel. To that end, I want to read two passages. The crucial period... The crucial date is 586. The first reading is before 586. 586 marked the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, the city, the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The second reading is after 586. So our first reading is in Exodus and chapter 5. I'll read the entire chapter and then we will turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 and read part of that. God is speaking. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire, one-third in the midst of the city, when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire. And burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments, and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my, my, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, 
therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third of you shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds and will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent and I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be avenged. They shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts and they will bereave you pestilence and blood shall pass through you and i will bring the sword against you i the lord have spoken and then slightly shorter in chapter 36 chapter 36 and verse 16 There is a rehearsal, first of all, here of their rebellion before the tone changes dramatically and God begins to unfold some of his promises that he will yet do for this rebellious nation. Verse 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwell in their own land, They defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations." Gather you out of all countries, 
and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. The year is 622 B.C., give or take. Josiah is the last good king sitting upon the throne of Judah. He's been preceded by Manasseh and Ammon, a very short reign of Ammon, but Manasseh, 55 years, despite his very late repentance, a reign of terror and cruelty, bloodshed and violence. The prophet Jeremiah has begun his ministry, which will take 40 years to complete. He is there. And in the house of a man called Boozy, there is a great celebration. His wife has just given birth to a male child, and they call him Ezekiel, which means God strengthens, or may God strengthen. It's a priestly home. He is a Levite. So Ezekiel is born with that priestly tradition and practice. He grows up with it. Yet when Ezekiel begins to prophesy, he is not in Jerusalem. He is somewhere around 30 years of age when the Lord speaks to him. And we find in chapter 1, and verses 1 and 2, where he is, not in Jerusalem, but in Babylon. He is in captivity. He has been taken off with the first batch of men and women and children who were taken away into Babylon. It came to pass in the 30th year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chiba. But the heavens were open and I saw visions of God on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. 
Josiah is removed. He has died. Now one of his sons is not a a good king, a wicked king. He is on the throne. And in the fifth uh, day of the month, the fifth year of King Jehoiachin, Ezekiel is there in Babylon. And the Lord God speaks to him. He sees visions of God. The heavens are opened. He sees the Lord in his glory. He sees the Lord in a brightness which is overwhelming. We find at the end of chapter 1 the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness of all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. Here is a man then overwhelmed by the glory of God. Have you ever read Ezekiel all the way through? Have you understood it? Maybe not. I'm not pretending that I understand every part of it either. But what I'm trying to do this morning is to give you the big picture. It's fairly simple to divide up the book of Ezekiel. There are four things that I want to cover this morning. The first is this, that Ezekiel is the mouthpiece of God. He is the mouthpiece of God. He is a priest, but he is commissioned to be a prophet. He is sent as a prophet, and as such, he speaks the words of God. He is the mouthpiece of the Lord God. He sees the Lord God on this chariot-like throne. The Spirit of the Lord enters him, chapter 2 and verse 2. And the Lord says to him in verse 7 of chapter 2, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. And then he eats the scroll. This is all a vision, but he eats this scroll that has been given to him. This man comes then with messages from heaven. Some of them are strange visions, strange signs, which don't really fit into our categories of thinking, but they fit it into his way of thinking. He's a God-given message. You read repeatedly, the word of the Lord came to me saying. So whatever you read in the book of Ezekiel is from God and is therefore to be heard and listened and to be understood. And in chapter 2 again in verse 5, he says again, whether they hear you or whether they refuse, they are rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among you. They will know that I am speaking through you to them. And more than that, for we read a phrase that keeps on recurring through the first 39 chapters of 
this prophecy. They shall know that I am the Lord. When you speak to them, they will know that I am the Lord. That is why you are my mouthpiece, Ezekiel. They are going to know me. They're going to know that I am the Lord. They have denied me. They've refused me. They've rebelled against me. But they will know that I am the Lord. That phrase and similar ones occur a hundred times throughout this book. And the phrase, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, occurs over 350 times in the Old Testament, and a third of them are found in this book of Ezekiel. They will know that I am the Lord. Does that remind you of former days? Moses? The burning bush? I am who I am, says the Lord. It is I am who has sent Ezekiel. It is I am who is speaking. The people in Moses' day knew that I am the Lord. Pharaoh knew and he would know in judgment. I am the Lord. Israel would know in salvation, I am the Lord. It is significant that Ezekiel goes back and we take our minds back to that passage, then the burning books passage in Exodus. Because what is he doing? Ezekiel is calling them back to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of the covenant, the God of Moses, the God who gave his laws and his statutes and his judgments, the Lord who established his dwelling among them and the worship in the tabernacle and subsequently the temple. So he is drawing them back as the mouthpiece of God. So that is the first thing we need to get clear in our minds. We are hearing here the word of the living God. I am the Lord. It is a divine confrontation. Then secondly, God, as God's mouthpiece, his message to the people is, you will know the Lord in severe judgment. Now I've already indicated that Pharaoh knew the Lord, and how did he know the Lord? He knew the Lord in judgment. All those plagues that came upon Egypt and then that final deliverance of Israel there by the, the sea and all his troops were destroyed. They knew the Lord in judgment and we can understand that. They were the enemies. Who knows the judgment of God now? It is Israel. It is Judah. They will know the Lord in judgment we read in chapter 5 and I'm taking that as an epitomizing chapter in chapter 5 we read this amazing verse in verse 9 you may have struck you when we read it I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again why 
because of your abominations. Ezekiel is in Babylon following that first removal of the people that had taken place five years before. Seven years later, 586, 587, Jerusalem is reduced to ruins. And a much larger group of people are taken away captive. Here is this man speaking now before that devastation takes place. It is a severe judgment of God. And God says, you will know that I am the Lord when I destroy this nation. Much of chapters 1 to 32 are God's words of judgment spoken in the five or six years before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem. Chapters 1 to 24 concern Judah and Jerusalem in particular. Chapters 25 to 32 concern the nations. Amnon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, the surrounding nations. They will also know the Lord in judgment. These are the enemies. These are the ones who have come against Israel and Judah in days gone by and inflicted all kinds of things upon them. They will also know the Lord in judgment. My concern immediately this morning is to bring out what God says concerning Judah and Jerusalem here in chapter 5. It is a devastating chapter. You cannot read it without being shocked by what you hear. And yet there are many other chapters which are even more shocking. And they are intended to shock you because of the seriousness of the situation that confronts them. Look at chapter 5. Chapters 4 and 5 concern the siege of Jerusalem. It's portrayed. There are four enacted messages. Strange things to be done publicly. We're looking at the fourth, where in chapter 5, Ezekiel is to take a sword and he's to shave himself, all his head, all his beard. And then he is to divide it up into equal portions. A third is to be burned with fire. A third is to be struck around with the sword. And a third is to be scattered to the wind. Verse 12 of chapter 5. One third of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. It's a horrible picture. A picture of absolute devastation and destruction. Can you imagine what is described in verse 10? 
The people are desperate for food. And Ezekiel says, fathers shall eat their sons. And the sons will eat their fathers. We would call that cannibalism. Desperate. Desperate for food. This is a judgment of God. You have defiled, says the Lord, verse 11. You have defiled my sanctuary and all your detestable things and with all your abominations. Therefore, I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity Could it get any worse than that for God to withdraw from them and bring such a severe judgment upon them? Pestilence, famine, sword, scattered by the sword. They will know my fury, he says, verse 13. My anger. There'll be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, an astonishment. All the nations around will say, what on earth is going on there in Judah? We thought this was a people favoured by the Lord. Now look what is happening to them. Why such severity? Why such judgment? Why such anger? Later on in the book of Ezekiel, God says, even if Job, Noah and Daniel were among them, I would not spare It must be bad, real bad, for such a statement to be made. There is only one answer as to why. It is evident as you read through the whole of Ezekiel. God is holy and will not and cannot tolerate sin. And as far as Judah and Jerusalem are concerned, these are the people whom he has taken out of the nations, he has made them his own people, he has dwelt among them, and they have rebelled against him. They do not want to know, they have no time. And they are filling the house of the Lord with their abominations, with worship that is far, far, far removed from what God commanded Moses and the people many years ago. It is an abomination. Verse 13, I will be avenged and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. There are other chapters in these first 32 chapters of Ezekiel that portray again in vivid vivid imagery what they have done. They have played the harlot They'll be abused by those to whom they have prostituted themselves to. Sin was rampant. They were worse than Samaria, yes, and even than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what we read later on in this prophecy. Prophets, priests, kings, rotten to the core. Josiah was the last Good king. He was followed by Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. 
Remember, the northern kingdom had long gone into captivity. This was a remnant left, and now they were going to go into captivity, and Jerusalem, to all intents and purposes, will be obliterated, destroyed. God would no longer dwell among them. We go on to read in chapter 8, where you find the abominations in the temple are described in great detail. And then you find in that chapter, and again in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departs. That is the worst tragedy that could befall them. The glory of the Lord departed from them. God abandoned them to their sin. What a terrible state. Hard-hearted, rebellious, not just the prophets, priests and kings, but the men, the women, even the children. A history of unfaithfulness, rebellion, idolatry. They were thinking to themselves, oh, God will never, never allow the temple to be destroyed. He'll never destroy Jerusalem. We're the favoured people of God. And Ezekiel pulls the rug clean from underneath their feet and says, you've got it all wrong. You will know the Lord in judgment. Your city, your temple will be destroyed. The unthinkable will happen and become reality. You'll be carried away captive like I and others have been carried away captive. And it'll be far worse. Famine, pestilence, destruction by the sword. What are we reading here? We're reading something that is a universal problem. We're reading about sin, human sinfulness. Why do people not become Christians? Why do people spurn the word of God? Why do they express their hatred of the Christian church and disciples of Christ? It's because of their sin, because of their blindness, because of their deafness. They don't believe what God says. God doesn't mean it. And yet here we have such a clear statement of God's holiness and God's attitude to sin. It is an abomination to him. And if you are here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, do not think for one moment that God smiles upon you and approves of your lifestyle. He is holy. You cannot stand in his presence and be accepted by him because of your sin. And it's not just your particular sins. It is your sin. It is your guilt. It is your corruption. All of us born into this world are corrupt. We are polluted. We are unclean in the sight of a holy God. It's only because of his kindness that we stand here today. You sinned against this God and your sin is an abomination in his sight. You lie. You cheat. Children, you disobey your parents. Covetousness. Adultery. But more than that, 
you turn away from God. You will not listen to his word. But not to believe in God and not to believe in his word has eternal consequences. It had temporal consequences for Israel and Judah. They were cast into captivity. But this is a prelude. This is a a picture of the kind of thing that will happen in the day of the Lord when Jesus Christ comes in power and in glory with all his angels and he will separate the sheep from the goats and those who have not followed him and been disciples of him and honoured him, believed his word, trusted in him, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And that is almost what is happening here. It is as if the Lord is saying, I really never knew you. You'll go out from my presence. My glory is departed from you. You'll be cast among all the nations of the world. Why is Ezekiel saying these things? In order that they would heed the word of God and repent of their sin and turn back to God. It's a call to repentance. Someone has said that hell is the truth seen too late. When Judah was taken into captivity. Those who had said again and again, this will never happen. They saw the truth. But it was too late. Too late. The judgment came. And yet God says, even in these chapters, in chapter 18, and he will reiterate it later on in chapter 33, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I find it hard to reconcile all these things. I simply have to say this is what God's word said. This is what God says. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But sin is an abomination to him. And he must judge because he is holy. Preachers are called to proclaim these truths. They're called to convince They're called to rebuke. They're called to exhort. So that you see your sin, you see your plight before this holy God and your need to be saved and washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be acceptable to God other than through Christ. As because God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, He has sent Jesus Christ into this world. The Son of God to flesh and blood suffered, died on that cruel cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, will come again to bring his people to be with him forever. But he is the one who has the words of eternal life. That's because God takes no delight. He delights in the salvation of sinners that's the sheer wonder of his grace we'll see that more in a moment does what we read in these chapters Ezekiel 1 to 32 
Does that have anything to say to us who are Christians? Absolutely. If you are going to make progress, then you need this message too. To shake you out of any complacency, any indifference, any carelessness with regard to your walk before God. You read chapters like this and they should make you hate sin all the more and want to cleave to God and lead you to wonder that God has ever set his love upon you. When you realize what this people deserve, you say, we're no better. We're no better. You who love the Lord hate evil. That is what our scripture says. What you love and what you hate will determine your whole life. The choices and the decisions that you make, if they are determined by the word of God, will lead you to hate sin the more and love God and his word all the more. I say to you then this morning, you who are lovers of God, set your heart against every evil that you find in your life, in your conduct. Because it's still there, isn't it? It remains. And some sins are more of a trouble to us than others, but they remain. But love God increasingly. Hating your sin, love God. Love Jesus Christ, his Son. Love his church. Love his worship. Love his word. His truth, his laws, his commandments, his statutes. Like the psalmist in Psalm 119, make them the delight of your heart. That is the practical impact to me of reading through this. It should drive you to hate your sin and to love God. So we've seen secondly that here is God's mouthpiece saying, you will know the Lord in judgment. But then thirdly, as God's mouthpiece, you will know the Lord in blessing and in salvation. There are shafts of light in these opening 32 chapters that speak of the, the hope of restoration. But that becomes as those shafts of light become as bright as the noonday sun in chapters 32 to 33 rather to 37 here is the gospel according to Ezekiel promises of a new day of new hopes when God will restore his people the surgical knife has been out now it is time to close the wound and apply the medicine these words in chapter 30 Uh, 33 to 37 these are words now that are spoken after the hammer blow of 586 87 the devastation of the city and of Jerusalem and its temple these are words spoken to a people in exile by a prophet in exile they probably thrown up their hands in horror and said we're done we're finished there's nothing for us there's no hope for us and God says listen Listen to what I say through my servant, Ezekiel. 
You thought it would never happen. It has happened. But that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of my dealings with you. You've listened to all these false prophets for years and years. They've led you astray. They've preached empty things to you. They've lied consistently. Now listen to my mouthpiece. Listen to my servant. You thought you couldn't trust anybody. You can trust me. You can trust my servant. Listen to what he has to say. Let me simply read to you again chapter 36. Not all of it, not the passage that we read in its entirety. I pointed out in verse 17 that God rehearses what has already happened. The judgment that has fallen. But then note, verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you go. As we read through these chapters, we, we are led to marvel at God's grace and God's love to his people. But there is something greater than that. It is the reputation that God has among all the nations of the world. God is going to do these things to bring honor and glory to him. They have profaned his name. He is going to sanctify his name. They are going to know the Lord and they're going to know him in blessing and salvation. And through that means, God is going to be glorified. He is taking action for his own name's sake. God is determined to have a people for himself. It is not merely his love and grace displayed toward them. It is his Holy determination to have a people for himself in their own land with a king which they don't have now since this devastation. And that is what we read here about this renewal of Israel. Verse 25, the Lord says, in order to bring honor and glory to me, I will sprinkle it. What I will do, I'll do all this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And so on. What do you understand by that? Did that happen when they were restored, when they came back from captivity? No way. When did God pour out his spirit? Well, you know John chapter 3, 
when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, you need to be born from above. You need to be born of the Spirit of God. God says he will change the hearts of his people and make them his people. It is the work of regeneration, making new the heart. The heart is the problem. It's not our sins that are the problem. It is our wicked heart that is the problem, as it was with Judah. And God will change it. God will transform it. A heart of stone will become a heart of flesh. The Spirit of God will be poured out. He will make his people new. And then if you go on, uh, if you turn back a chapter or so, and here I have to skate quickly, but in chapter 34, the shepherds, who have formerly led Israel, useless, cast away, irresponsible. And what does God say? Verse 11, Indeed I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day, he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Verse 16, I will seek what was lost, bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And then further on, verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them. And be their shepherd. And I the Lord will be their God. And my servant David a prince among them. I the Lord have spoken. You say hang on a moment. David died years before this. Who's he speaking about? Well as you read through that chapter. What does it remind you of? Does it remind you of the great shepherd of the sheep? The Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel is promising. Jesus Christ. God's shepherd of his sheep will come. That should leave us open-mouthed. This is staggering. But this is God determined to have a people for his name's sake. And to do so, he will send the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he will gather his flock. He will bring them. A rule of righteousness will be established. A ruler who is righteous will be established. All the kings that have ever gone before, and that includes David. He was not perfect. All the kings that have gone before have failed. But one will come, one shepherd, who will gather God's flock. Chapter 34 speaks then of the blessings of restoration, salvation. And you'll notice in that chapter in verses 26 and 27, I will make them and the places all around them my hill a blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land. They shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. As you read these things, you realize that even the first coming of Christ does not fulfill all these prophecies. 
You have to look beyond. You have to look beyond. There's another chapter, isn't there? Chapter 37, the dry bones. Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. I'm not going to sing it to you, (laughs) for sure. You'd all leave. But that chapter, what is it about? It's about life, resurrection life. Well, where's that going to come from? It didn't come with Nehemiah and Ezra when they returned. It comes only through Jesus Christ, raised from the dead on the third day. And he will raise his people on the last day and give them new bodies so they may dwell in the new world that he has created. You see, what is, what is Ezekiel essentially saying in these chapters? He's saying to this people who are downcast, given up hope, he's saying, do not give up on God. These are prophecies of hope. They're all part of a peace, the new covenant that God promised in, uh, through Jeremiah, the coming of Christ, the coming of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, and all that that entails, heading towards, as we will see in a moment, the new heavens and the new earth. But see what motivates, what drives God. It is His getting a reputation for Himself in this world where sin and death and Satan seek to destroy and undermine. God will not be overthrown. God will win the day and bring glory to his name. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. It grows out of this prophecy of Ezekiel, essentially. And God refuses to abandon his word and his plans You remember the first great gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And then those promises that are made to Abraham. And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well in Ezekiel's day it didn't look like that did it? It was not a shambles. You'd have looked at that scene and said, where are these promises? Useless. They're never going to take place. What did God promise to David? The covenant that God made with David? Your throne will be an everlasting throne. Your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And when the angel spoke to Mary, he reminded her that the child that she would bear would be a descendant of David. That's what Matthew tells us. The opening words of the Gospels. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's of the seed of David, now raised from the dead. And it is a wonder when you look at this book and you realize there is not only a prophet in Jerusalem, Jeremiah. There is a prophet in exile speaking these things to a people in exile. And there's a prince and an interpreter of dreams in the palace in Babylon. Daniel and his friends. And Daniel is there when, when Babylon falls. And then there is an, there is a, an Ezra. 
there's a Nehemiah, there's a Haggai, there's a Zechariah, there's a Malachi. They're all taking us further forward to the day when these things will be fulfilled. Here is a reversal that only God can complete. Here is comfort, here is hope, here is restoration, there is salvation. It's paving the way for Christ. And that brings me fourthly and lastly. Here is God's mouthpiece, Ezekiel. And we see the final triumph of God's purposes. Gog and Magog have occupied a lot of people (laughs) fruitlessly to try and identify who Gog and Magog are. Well, if you know your Bible, they occur not only here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but in the book of Revelation. They are mighty enemies. Mighty enemies of God and of God's people. And they here will be overthrown. That is precisely what John says. That is what John sees in Revelation. The Lord will overthrow these invaders. There will be a massive conflict. And it will be the end of these enemies. They will leave the stage. They will exit. That's what you find in the book of Revelation. And then you have Ezekiel's, what I've called, Ezekiel's version of Revelation in chapters 40 to 48. These follow on the promises of chapter 37, verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. They shall dwell there, they, their children, their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Verse 27, where is that echoed? Verse 27, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you know your Bible well enough to know where that comes? In the last book of the Scriptures, in Revelation chapter 21, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, verse 3, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That ultimately is what Ezekiel was looking to. How much he understood, I do not know. But sometimes the prophets spoke things which they didn't understand fully. We're told that in the New Testament scriptures. But God will dwell among his people. When that final judgment, when the Gog and Magogs are removed from this world, 
when the false beast, the prophet, Satan, cast into the lake of burning fire, then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, Ezekiel does not give us a picture like John does, but he's a prophet, he's a priest, so he gives us a priestly picture of this heavenly glory that is yet to come. He comforts his people there in exile. You see, if you read through chapters chapters 40 to 48, you will read there, the glory of the Lord that had departed returns. And if you turn to the very, very end of Ezekiel, here is all this description of the gates of the city and its name. And verse 35 says, all the way round shall be 18,000 cubits. We leave that to one side for the moment. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. That is the ultimate blessing. That is salvation. That's eternal life, to know this God, to know this Lord. Now this chapter again, these chapters, these last chapters, have mystified a lot of people. And a lot of people have made a lot of money writing about these things and they're not to be relied upon. (laughs) You cannot take these things literally. If you take them literally, all the measurements, you'll find the city of Jerusalem here and the temple is outside the city. It cannot be. That's ridiculous. You're not to take it literally. This is God speaking in a, and giving Ezekiel a priestly picture of the land, of the people of God, and God dwelling among his people. And the message is that God saves, God restores, he fulfills his word. His word will triumph. That's what this book of Revelation is about. And that's what these last chapters of Ezekiel are about. I'll tell you a story briefly. There was a man about 30 years ago who wrote a very brief commentary on the book of Revelation. And he was, I think he was the, the rector or vicar of All Souls Langham Place. You would know that from John Stott. Well, John Stott was no longer there. This man was now the, the, the vicar, the rector. And he was speaking there with a young convert. He said, I've read the book of Revelation. Uh, and this, this man sort of held his head and thought, what on earth will he make of it? He said, what did you understand by it? Oh, he said, it's easy. The lamb wins. The lamb wins. And that's what Ezekiel is saying here. This great shepherd, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's the lamb that was slain. And he's the lamb who comes on his horse, king of kings, lord of lords. He is the one who is the glory with his father of the new heavens and the new earth. What salvation is this? What comfort is this for the people of God? Where is your hope fixed? Is it fixed on this lamb who wins the battle, who will overthrow all 
your enemies, his enemies, and bring about the cause of God. Which side are you on? Does your life reflect that you are fighting on the side of the Lamb who wins? Have you been saved from your sins? Taken out of darkness, brought into light. You have eternal life. You have the forgiveness of sins. You are freely justified. You are accounted righteous in God's eyes. And you have before you the hope of heaven and of glory. One day you will be with Christ. And you will see him as he is. And you will be like him. That is the hope that we have. And although it is not spelled out in great detail as it is in the New Testament here in Ezekiel, that is what this man is ultimately talking about. And it is staggering to think that he was doing this while in exile when there appeared to be no hope whatsoever. Brothers and sisters in Christ never give up on God's word, however desperate the situation may be. His word stands forever. It will never fail. And Christ will come in his glory and bring us to glory with him. What joy will that day bring for all those who have simply trusted in Christ against all the odds? That ultimately is what the message of Ezekiel is about. You take nothing away, and the nut's a bit too big, (laughs) then take that away. Your Saviour will win and triumph, and you will win and triumph with him. In glory, with Christ, and with his Father. Amen.